This is the Small Mouth Crush Podcast. If you're a hardcore angler, you've come to the right place. This is a weekly podcast that will interview some of the top smallmouth bass anglers in North America. Travis and his guest will discuss what it takes to consistently catch big smallmouth, and you'll get a glimpse inside the mind of a trophy smallmouth angler. And now, here's your host of the Smallmouth Crush Podcast, Travis Manson. You're welcome to the Smallmouth Crush Podcast. Another great week talking smallmouth. Can't get enough of this, although we're coming up to the end of the season. And it looks like we will have a season two in the works. Just not quite sure how that's going to be laid out just yet. Uh, But it's been a lot of fun. Been a lot of work. I hope you guys are enjoying all this great smallmouth information uh, that we're getting from all these great guests. But I do want to thank, of course, The Real Shot. They've been a sponsor of this podcast from the start. Really, they're the premier tackle store in Wisconsin. They're on, they're on the web, therealshot.com. You can purchase all of your fishing equipment. they got a bunch of hunting equipment, too. I know this is a time of year where we're starting to get into hunting as well. And so if you head on over there, they got pretty much anything and everything you need fishing-related as well. Kitech, Megabass, Evergreen, Damiki, Ozuri. They got it all. Rapala, VMC, Berkeley, Z-Man, all the... Um, all the standard brands as well. If you use my code smallmouthcrush15 at checkout, you're going to get 15% off your first order. So that's a pretty pretty good deal. Therealshot.com. Let's bring on today's guest. And there he is. Jason, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, man. How are things going on your end? Awesome. Awesome. You know, I'm really looking forward to this. I know you love catching smallmouth, big smallmouth. And uh, love to really get into it with you and, and pick your brain when it comes to chasing these fish. But before we go there, Jason, if you could give us a quick introduction about yourself and, and a little bit about your background and and um, kind of what you're up to today. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. I mean, I love, uh, just like you, we love our smallmouth bass. I pretty much love everything fishing. But, you know, being from up north, we uh, we obviously are passionate uh, smallmouth guys. So, I mean, we have to be if we want to compete in any fishing tournaments, of course. So, uh, don't get me wrong. I love catching my largies, too. But uh, mm-hmm. smallmouth is the name of the game. So, uh, I got kind of a little bit of a different background probably than the majority of your guests just because of uh, my geographical location. I'm, uh, I'm born and raised just uh, actually on the island of Montreal. So, I'm from Montreal. And... Unlike you guys in the States or, you know, further down south or even guys in Ontario for that matter. I mean, bass is, I think we're number, it's number eight or number 10 on our target species mm. list here in Quebec. So growing up, I mean, it was pretty much everything uh, but bass fishing, really. And not because I wasn't into it, not because the people around me weren't into it. It's just we didn't know anything about it. So uh, Bob Izumi being my idol, I mean, you know, he's he was with his fishing show was always a multi-species type of deal. So I could say I pretty much came to the game considerably later than the majority of the hardcore bass guys, such as ourselves. You know, uh, when you look at, you know, you just look at the the, the growing up, I, I thought it was only live bait would catch fish or inline spinners. I had a real hard time with anything else. Even our tackle shops never even had knowledgeable, uh, you know, store staff who could teach you about bass fishing. So it kind of had a little bit of a weird, uh, a weird beginning and then, uh, I don't know how our how this podcast is going to roll. We can get it. I mean, it's kind of a neat way we got into it with my fishing partner at a pro-am and stuff. I mean, uh, it's, well, what it's, got you interested in, in bass fishing? Um, you know, growing up, obviously, there was other species. I guess, first of all, what did you like to target growing up? Well, before, before there was bass, what was like the key fish that you just love to fish for? Dude, I couldn't catch any fish. So there was there, <laughs> there was there was just going fishing. And <clears throat> the best way I can put it is I have a lot of people ask me often, like, like, where did your fishing passion begin from? And the crazy thing is that I think it was eight years old. I'd wake up in the morning, like I just mentioned, and I'd run downstairs and go watch Bob Azumi Real Fishing and then the Fishing Canada show. So especially like I said, I was a hockey guy growing up in Montreal. I had my parents didn't fish. My uncles didn't fish. Nobody I knew fish. So Hmm. I, I, to this day, I often still ask myself where it happened. Was it one day I drove by a lake going to a hockey tournament and saw a fish or saw somebody fishing off, off the bank or something. I, I can't really tell you, but you know, uh, the bass fishing actually really started in, uh, in like 2005, 2006 when I accidentally, in the spring, uh, walleye fishing came across some pretty big smallmouth 
Uh, had no idea at that point of what seasons were or anything. I mean, obviously educated myself pretty quickly on that. Um, but I thought it was God's gift to bass fishing when I started mm. catching all those fish in May, uh, walleye fishing at that time. So if, to ask your, to answer your question, I mean, realistically, it all started, uh, it all started trying to chase walleye and then seeing what bass was all about, <clears throat> excuse me. And then obviously from there, Bassmaster magazine, educating myself and everything. But to kind of come back to your, uh, to come back to your initial, initial question, um, you know, my background really has, has evolved. I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of us have had that dream of, of somewhat being a professional angler or, uh, you know, somewhat making our, making our living in the fishing industry. And over the years, I was fortunate enough to, um, to actually become the, uh, the rep for Eastern Canada for Minkota and Shimano, uh, for quite a few years. And then, uh, in the last couple of years, I've actually came on board as the national sales manager for, uh, for American Baitworks for all nice. of Canada. So that's kind of how the progression, I know I kind of gave you a real quick rundown, but that's kind of how the progression really started from a young age, just wanted to catch fish, uh, realizing how cool bass were. And then from there, the passion just took off. I ended up, uh, you know, getting into a pro-am tournament with my partner that I fish with up to these days and Nicholas and, you know, it kind of all took off from there. Wow. Was there a lot of, uh, bass tournaments growing up or you like your first event? What, what made you want to get involved in, in tournament fishing? So in reality, up until, really 2006 2007 i almost didn't even know a bass tournament existed uh to that you know we we were that were that sheltered or you know lack of lack of fishing education or high-end fishing education in quebec it was pretty serious and that's actually we'll get on that later that's kind of all the the social media stuff i'm doing is to continue with the education i I love i love what you guys are doing believe it or not i learned a bunch off your channel on lake ontario how to find you know, I had a, I'm not, I don't have much, much of an issue finding river fish, but finding lake fish when it's hmm. big, expansive flat. So I like sharing, you know, the education and teaching people, but where it all really uh, came together was in, I, I must've been that 2006, 2007 year. I was at the Montreal outdoorsman show, fishing and hunting show, whatever you want to call it. And uh, a local tournament trail called Quebec Bassmasters uh, had a draw for a pro-am. So basically you can enter your name and you can be chosen. And, um, you know, they, they randomly called me at some point in early June and said, Hey, uh, you, your name was drawn. Uh, you're invited <laughs> to come and fish this, uh, this pro-am tournament. So then, and I might be screwed on my timelines. Maybe that year I was starting to get into the U S tournaments and reading a little bit about it as I developed and learned more about bass, but it all kind of happened at the same time. And, uh, when I showed up at the tournament, they, uh, they said, you're fishing with Nicolas Gendron and Matthew Gendron. And I look across the room and there's this, I think I must have been, I don't know, I must have been 21 at the time, 22. And Nicholas is 18 and his brother's 16. Hmm. First question I ask him, I'm like, what kind of bass boat you got? <laughs> right. So, uh, and we wow. ended up actually winning that tournament. No um, kidding. Yeah, I was fishing a jerk shad on a medium spinning rod. So how I ended up landing the tournament hmm. lunker, I have no clue. I think mono even on the reels. So sure. yeah, it was pretty basic stuff. But then obviously you know, your first tournament you win and then, uh, and then it just ended up progressing from there. Nicholas ended up, his brother ended up, you know, going to do something else. And we started fishing together. I think it, yeah, sorry, 2007 would have been the pro-am and we started fishing together in 2008. And that was, that's really where tournaments started for me was Quebec Bassmasters on the St. Lawrence river. Wow. So I was going to ask you what you consider your home body of water or the place that you fish the most. Uh, what would that be? Is it the St. Lawrence down in that, that stretch of the Okay. Yeah, so Lake St. Francis would be my my home body of water. I've, you know, been fishing St. Lake St. Francis, you know, pretty hard since probably 2008 to 2009 is where it really would have taken off. Um, I probably have like 3,000 waypoints on St. Francis. I literally have looked at every edge, every flat, every hump. So by far, definitely. But I would say the St. Lawrence River from Morrisburg, all the way to Lac St. Louis, which is the St. Lawrence just outside the island of Montreal, would probably be my home body of water. Oh, great. Yeah, so so those that are not familiar, you know, we've all heard about the St. Lawrence River and the great fishing and the Thousand Islands. Uh, this section is actually below a dam, uh, a man-made dam that was built. Uh, I don't know when it was built, but it basically is kind of a totally different section of the St. Lawrence River. I mean, a lot of tournaments can't lock through and, and vice versa. So you're kind of stuck at, I'm going to call it a pool for lack of better uh, knowledge, but it's a uh, definitely amazing 
stretch of the river, very unique. Uh, it's got great largemouth as well as smallmouth, just like a lot of the other parts of the St. Lawrence River. And then, of course, Lake St. Francis, which is um, a huge body of water in itself. And so for you to spend that much time and, and learn it, I mean, there's so much to it. I'm sure there's a ton that, that you don't know about that stretch because it's just so, so massive. Uh, what do you think the future holds as far as fishing in that stretch? Are you guys seeing... Uh, the amount of pressure that we might see a little bit closer to Lake Ontario and, and how has the fishing changed for the better or the worse in the last couple of years? That's uh, Travis. That's a great question. And uh, I would argue that uh, just by years and years on, on that body of water, I've, I've learned more by fishing and you could probably say the same about all the stuff you fish, probably more than any biologist could tell you just by seeing you know, seeing the evolution, seeing how the river, you know, how the river operates. So you made a good point. So the very interesting part about Lake St. Francis is that it is controlled by two hydroelectric dams. So obviously you have the Moses Saunders Dam, which runs between the U.S. side and the Ontario side. And then you have the Bohornwa Dam, which is the main discharge into the St. Lawrence below Lake St. Francis. So it literally changes every single year, depending on the water flow, depending mm. on, you know, the current draws, the power needs. So it's a pretty complex question, but the best way that, that I can answer it is uh, it's getting better. And mm. I wouldn't necessarily say that above the dam is getting better. And I'll, I'll back that up with, with some points because obviously guys will look at the weights and be like, man, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Look at these monster bags coming out of Lake O and coming out of Clayton and stuff. And that's all true. The difference with Lake St. Francis and above the dam, so the St. Lawrence, let's just call it the St. Lawrence below the dam and the St. Lawrence above the dam, mm -hmm. is that below the dam is fed by five or six major, major tributaries. So you have the Grass River, St. Regis, you have the Raisin River, the Bodette River, you have the Salmon River. I'm drawing a blank. I know there's one or two others. Uh, there's another one up on the reserve uh, that I'm just not uh, not thinking of right now. And then there's a bunch of creeks that are also tributaries as well. So the vast majority, and I say vast majority, like I'd probably say between 80 to 90% of the smallmouth population are untouched in the spring. They mm -hmm. run up these rivers, they spawn in peace, they spawn early, obviously, uh, you know, you guys have it on your side of the on your side of the uh, the river as well, but you know our 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 M and R are very strict. Our catch and release we have no catch and release season. I mean, I'm kind of contradict myself. We opened it early this year, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, like our season opens late. You know, we're really conservative when it comes to bass conservation, if you want to call it. Uh, so our fish spawn healthy, good, clean, and they have these phenomenal spawns. So. Don't get me wrong. There'll be guys, oh, I got betters on the main river. I'm like, dude, that's 3% of the smallmouth population. So when you get those insane numbers of deep fish, uh, you know, that are up towards Cornwall and Aquasauce and stuff, I mean, those fish are spawning by the thousands in those brown water tributaries. So mm -hmm. the fishing is continuously getting better because they are having these phenomenal spawns. Uh, for the most part, I mean, there's, you know, there's... Uh, environmental changes that will obviously affect low water years in those rivers and stuff, which I can't, you know, shed too much light on because the fishing has been getting better and better. But I mean, let me put it this way. I, we fished a tournament in July when fish are early July, when fish are supposed to be weighing a bit light, we weighed in mm -hmm. just under 24 pounds and finished in eighth place on a 40 hmm. boat tournament. Sure. We're not talking yeah. a 200 boat tournament. We're talking a 40 boat tournament. I came in with 2370 and I was in eighth place. Wow. So yeah, and I'm talking, we're throwing back dozens and dozens of two and three pounders as well. Conversely, above the dam, it's primarily main river spawners. You don't have those big tributaries. Yeah, you got a couple in Waddington and stuff. But I mean, for the size of that river, it's all main river. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening is, you know, the sight fishermen, as you become better and better at bed fishing, and you get more and more boats doing it, I mean, these fish are getting absolutely throttled. You look at some of those major events they had this year in the spring, like back-to-back -back major, major events. I mean, they had it with a college series. I think it was last year or the year before. Like, I think it was like 350 boat three-day tournament during the spawn. So mm -hmm. not, this is not to get into a debate on whether, you know, it's good or bad, but I cannot imagine in five years or in seven years if the fishing is going to be nearly as good 
above the dam and towards Lake O uh, as, it, as it is what we're seeing right now. Now, obviously, I know that they're doing some changes. I heard New York is right on the cusp of doing some pretty significant changes as well, um, which I think as crappy as it is, because catching bed and fish is always fun. In the same token, I mean, they're real vulnerable. And I think mm-hmm. uh, I think we need to protect this this incredible resource. I agree. I agree 100% with you. It's, uh, it's fun. It's, uh, I, you know, I enjoy doing it, but I realize the, uh, the sacrifice, you know, that the fish are giving up to be able to have a productive life cycle and, and not be harassed constantly. It, it is important. There's, there's gotta be a balance between the two. And we're certainly seeing that up on the, above the dam, as far as a lot of the, um, pressure, you know, when it comes to smallmouth fishing that time of year, but that's fascinating. I'm, I'm real curious too. I know, you're talking there's another dam near Montreal. Do you explore further down in that stretch as well? And then yeah. let me ask you this, because I'm just okay. curious. I got to know, and maybe you don't know, because we still probably have a couple more hundred miles before you get to the ocean. Like, how far down can you catch a smallmouth in the St. Lawrence River? So that is a wicked question, and I, I <laughs> wish, I'm really happy we're doing this, because I wish, every I, I'm watching Bassmaster Live, and they're just talking about the St. Lawrence River. Basically, they're talking Waddington to the lake. And I'm like over here going, guys, there's like another 200 miles of St. Lawrence River, which is phenomenal fishery. So below wow. the Bohornois Dam, you get into a big basin. Actually, no, I'm looking on my wall. I got a map behind me. You know, that's that's St. Francis and the St. Lawrence. I, I have okay. uh, the whole the whole stretch sure. of river on the but so that river, so what's really interesting about the basin below St. Francis is that that's where the Ottawa River dumps into. So if you go look at Google, the Ottawa River discharges into Lake St. Louis, Lake St. Louis in English, Lake Lac St. Louis in French. So now you have the St. Lawrence River that comes in on one side and you got the Ottawa River brown water coming in. And it actually makes this incredible water stain line right through the middle of the river. Obviously, the yeah. South Shore would be the St. Lawrence, the shipping channel and stuff like that. Um and that's a phenomenal fishery. Like you're not going to really? get like a 20 pound bag is like a real solid bag of smallmouth. A big bag of largemouth that weigh around 20 pounds. You got like a real good uh, natural bird reserve there. That's like got a bunch of rice and mat hmm. and everything. And then as you go further east, you actually, there's no more dams. So that's where the river flows naturally all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. It probably goes, you probably have about a hundred, no, that's more than that. You probably have about 300 kilometers, which would be about 200 miles of bassy water. Hmm. As you go further east, more and more rivers dump into the St. Lawrence and the water color changes to that dark greenish, brownish hue to it. The whole river? Yeah, it gets a lot. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And all those tributaries, they're all brown water rivers. And some of them are pretty big. Like, you know, you have the, in French, they're called the Millil River, which is in English, the Thousand Islands River, because there's a bunch of real small islands. And these are all pretty significant size uh, tributaries. Hmm. that I mean have uh, have real significant flow to them. So uh, so to answer your question is, where does it go? Quebec City, which, you know, we've all heard of Quebec City, which is about 200 miles, 180 miles east of Montreal. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's about a 10-foot tide. You can still catch smallmouth. Whoa. Yeah, so you can still catch That's tidal crazy. smallmouth. And what's crazy there is the weights start to go back up as you get to the tides. So you hmm. can get, you can get like 25 pound bags of spinnerbait, two foot deep, like brown water smallmouth up there. Wow. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not the norm. It's not Lake Ontario fish. It's sure. not, you know, St. Francis or Waddington fish, but you know, it's, it's a power fisherman's paradise, you know, jerk shads and chatterbaits and spinnerbaits, hmm. even, even top water for that matter. Right. So, uh, so that's your question you're looking at about. From Lake Ontario, you're looking at about 350 miles of river that you can fish before you really get into that more of that brackish water towards the Saguenay where you get whales and stuff like that. Hmm. That's pretty cool, man. I'm glad. uh, Yeah, I'm always curious. You know, there's not a lot of people. I I don't know anybody that fishes that stretch. Um, Is there tournaments that go on down there? Yeah, there's... uh, there's wow. nothing big. So again, come back to what I started it with being an uneducated Quebec angler for the most part. Now, don't get me wrong. Quebec anglers are getting, I mean, if you look at some of the, the renegade results and even some of the TIO results and stuff, I mean, you're getting a bunch of Quebec teams that are becoming very good anglers. Uh, but for the most part, the general population are not bass anglers. You know, you get mm-hmm. the younger guys like us that are into it, even younger than us. 
but for the most part, um, you know, it's walleye and brook trouts and uh, fly fishing and a lot of musky guys and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so to answer your question, there's no, there's not a ton of tournaments, but every year you'll get one or two uh, decent tournaments that'll be about 60 or 80 miles east of Montreal. Uh, and they're good. Like, so if you actually, after this, obviously podcast, you go look at Google. So the St. Lawrence River will narrow. So that Lac St. Louis will then narrow down into the St. Lawrence River. It'll run for about 50, 60 miles. And then it'll open up into a massive lake, similar hmm. to Lake St. Francis. It's called Lake St. Pierre. Okay. And that one, that lake is, I don't know, 40 miles long, 50 miles long. And then it narrows back down. And then that's the St. Lawrence River all the way out to the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. So a lot of tournaments will be, I say a lot. The few tournaments that there are will be held either at the eastern end, the eastern end, or the western end of Lake St. Pierre. Wow. Well, that's going to be on my list someday to go check it out. How would you describe the scenery down in that end? Is it is there is it wilderness? Is there still a lot of houses? Is it very similar to what we're used to at the top end? Or what does it look like? So totally different. Um, it floods a lot down there, depending on the spring. Like, I mean, there's it gets pretty nasty down there. So you got right at the right at the mouth of Lake St. Pierre, it's you've got something called the Sorel Islands, which would be similar to what you would call the islands in St. Francis before the lake opens up. It's kind of the same type of deal. Mm -hmm. The difference is that they're brown water and, uh, and those are more flats really than islands on Francis, but let's say those were islands. Um, and you know, you get houses on stilts everywhere because the water will fluctuate by wow. 10, 15 feet throughout the spring. Uh, so the scenery is somewhat similar where, you know, shoreline scenery, it's a lot flatter land there. So there's a lot of agriculture, a lot of farming fields. And that's another reason why there's a lot of runoff and stuff that hurts okay. the water there. Is it grass or, or hard structure or both? Oh, and the, yeah. So the river will be a lot of like a silty, mucky bottom. You hmm. won't get those shell deposits nearly as much. Uh, there's a lot of rock and stuff, but it's more of a softer bottom. But you do get a lot of sand flats, shot up. Not the flats we're thinking of, of course. But when yeah. you get on them, you can see it's a hard pack compressed sand from the current. Um, a lot of reed beds, a lot of reed points and stuff like that. Mm. I mean, guys such as yourself, you'd go down there and you'd go hit everything that would look bassy. You'd do well. Hmm. Yeah. But it's it's still different. It is it is still different. Hmm. Like guys are upwards of 150 fish a day. Uh, but like not stuff we're necessarily used to. Pulled down like 60 fish off one cast type of thing, hmm. wow. which I, I think it's that brown water that schools those fish a lot more than something. Right. We sure. Eat, right? Man, that's, yeah, uh, that's pretty cool. That's fascinating. So what would you consider your favorite way to target smallmouth? If you could pick one technique or pattern, which, what would, what's kind of your go-to or get you excited? Um, that's uh give you a pretty cheesy answer, but uh, really, uh, it's so hard for me, man. Whichever way they're biting, I mean, hmm. I I I won a lot of money uh, in the last you know last few years fishing a football head in uh, in shale deposits. So again, knowing the river quite intimately, and you know, spending a lot of time behind uh, behind the wheel, a lot of time looking at a camera, you know, staring into my little screen as I'm drifting along the river. Um, you kind of understand how the fish set up on the bottom of the river and what they're using. And, uh, I, I, you know, like I said, I, the house I'm in right now was, you know, the deposit down payment was paid for by a fishing tournament, dragging a football head in the shell bed. So if mm. I had to, uh, if I had to answer with one, it would definitely be dragging a big half ounce or three quarter ounce football head. Okay. I love it when I hear all the guys talking about finesse smallmouth and we're over here sure. with the seven, six medium heavies with, uh, big braid and big floral leaders and we're cracking on these deep smallmouth like they're like it's a flipping stick yeah. um you know and they they come in the boat you know they they get in the boat pretty sure. quick so uh so i'd have to say it would be a football head but you know a close second is definitely a uh a de definitely a drop shot okay so when you're looking for these fish uh in, in targeting with football heads um you mentioned deep water you mentioned a little bit of camera and a lot of uh idling time looking at your electronics what what's important what's like what's i'm sure it's a combination of things but as far as like walk me through a typical i guess going over some structure and trying to see if there's some fish in that area or if the if the structure is the right kind of structure you want to be looking for what exactly are you doing and how are you implementing that underwater camera during this as well 
So the first thing and the most important thing is, is there current? And I don't mean, is there a little bit of current? Is there current hitting right onto what I'm looking for? If there's no current, I'm not even, I'm not even wasting my time because with the current comes the zebra muscle shells. And then once the current hits a point, an edge, a hump, a rise, those shells will make somewhat, they call it actually, uh, I don't want to get nerdy on you here, but they call it a hydraulic lift, actually. So what okay. it does is the water will hit and then it'll, it'll kind of make its own eddy on itself on these underwater obstacles. And um, yeah, and then what they do is they'll deposit the shells. So number one thing I'm looking for is current. The... Second thing I'm looking for is hard bottom. So because sometimes when you have current doesn't necessarily mean hard bottom. I mean, it does for the most part, but it's got to be hard bottom. So obviously on the, uh, when I'm, when I'm scanning on, you know, the side view or the down view, uh, I'm really looking for it to light up like a Christmas tree. Like that, that screen has to get real bright and that's telling me it's a hard bottom. Uh, and that'll be the first place that I check the hmm. probably the most important aspect to all of finding these fish is the underwater camera now i'm not sponsored by aquaview i'd love to have a nice sponsorship by these guys with the amount of cameras i've smashed <laughs> to the bottom of the river right and, uh, how many i've gone through in the last few years but sure um in the clear water situations there's nothing better uh nothing better than an aquaview i mean i have i have the garmin live scope i know guys will be using active targets and the new hummingbird lives and stuff but they just they just don't do the same thing when it comes to looking for fish on the river. You probably know it yourself if you're looking at that live technology. It works sometimes, mm -hmm. but you can't rely on it. You know, you can when you're in a lake setting and stuff, but uh, obviously well, not we, on the river. So. Before we get there, I just want to, uh, a couple questions on that. So when you're idling and you find one of these spots and you, and you see some current breaking over a piece of structure out there and it looks like there's some hard bottom behind it. Are you, do you also have like 2D? Are you able to see them on your side image in the river? Um, are you doing any of that or are you pretty much, you find a spot that looks good and you're looking at it with the camera right away? 100% with the camera. The reason okay. is in the river, there's so much debris coming through the system that when I look at my 2D, you'd think I was in the best fishing spot mm -hmm. every single place in the entire river. Okay. So, Yep. Don't get me wrong. I, there's guys that are, oh, I'm fishing 2D and I'm catching fish. And I'm not going to argue with them because they're catching fish. But I, like the amount of crap I've seen flow through that system, um, relying on 2D to me is is virtually useless for the most part. Mm -hmm. So I'll drop a camera right away. The camera will hit the bottom. And I'll do it. If, if, I, if it looks right and I didn't see any fish, I'll do a couple of passes. Now, this is where, and I don't want to go off too much on a tangent, but this is where it's become very difficult. The more you know, the less you know, in a sense, because the more you know, the more you want to understand each structure I fish. So let's let's use an underwater point as a certain example. I'll fish the front of it, I'll fish both sides of it, and I'll fish along the edges of it. But if you want to do that methodically with a camera, it could take you hmm. four hours. Right. So... You get these situations where you get off the water and you're like, damn, like I just spent sure. eight hours on yep. one hump mm -hmm. and I'm not even exaggerating. I have spent eight hours on one hump. I believe it. Like, yeah. so it ends up biting you and it almost goes back. When you know less, you know more. I drop the camera. I'd see two big fish. I'm like, oh, this spot's amazing. I get there in the tournament. I'd catch a fish. I'd be like, oh man, this is so easy. But then once you understand First of all, once you drop a camera, you understand how many fish truly live in the bottom mm -hmm. of the river. Mm -hmm. We catch a lot of fish and we're catching 0.1% of them. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I truly believe that. Like, mm -hmm. you'll catch five on a spot or on a stretch and there's 800, not 20, you know. Right. So a typical camera setup, the, the one I, the one I have is kind of like this, this. My screen's the size of a cell phone, right? And I have I have the plenty of cord line going down. Um do you put some sort of weight on that camera to get it down quicker and keep it so you can see what's going on? Absolutely. You, okay. need, you need the biggest, heaviest. If your camera's not heavy, leave it at home. You mm -hmm. need the heaviest. I have like I have the old Aquaview that's got like a fish, like a yellow perch, and it's got these big belly weights. The new ones, they sell up to like one pound weights on them. So mm -hmm. uh, you absolutely, you got to get to the bottom or else the ca if it's light, the camera's spinning on itself. You'll, you'll feel sick. You won't see anything. Um, nice heavy camera and I literally just drag it six inches. I let it, 
And I'll give you guys a trick. Anybody who knows cameraing, I'm sure you got a bunch of guys that are going to listen to this that do a whole bunch of cameraing, and you get on an area, what I do is I actually let the camera hit the bottom. Because often what it'll do is it'll like, it'll yep. turn on itself. Sure. And it, you should see how many times that the camera turns and all of a sudden the small mouth are like, <laughs> what's that? Yeah. Just, no, they'll, they'll actually like, they're mm-hmm. following and then the camera turns and then they're like, oh damn, he sees me. <laughs> they'll right. all scatter. Sure. And be like, I've been going down this stretch and there's eight giant small mouth that are following this camera and I never saw him for one second. So wow. yeah, it's, it's so important to have. Are you on the trolling motor? Or are you in the driver's seat normally? So I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to pump my own tires a little bit. I'm, uh, I would want to call a, a uh, pioneer when it comes to this whole camera electric motor. So five years ago, every single guy had a Fortrex, right? Mm-hmm. I had a Tarova and everybody looked at me. Why would you put a Tarova on your boat? And I'd be like, oh, it's just the motor I have. I used to kind of play it dumb trying sure, to okay. keep all the secrets. But what I was doing. You're listening to the Small Mouth Crush Podcast. Don't rush out to the water just yet. We'll be right back. After this break. Hey guys, are you interested in saving some money on your fishing tackle or fishing gear purchases? Want to get sponsorship pricing without having to wear that patch or getting your boat wrapped for a 20% discount? For me as a guide and a tournament angler, I spend a lot of money on equipment and gear. So every little bit helps. I joined the Insiders Club at a site called OutdoorSponsors.com, and I encourage every one of you to do so as well. It's a yearly membership, and when you sign up, you'll get 20 to 40% off any of the brands that they've partnered with. It's super easy to sign up. I'm going to give you a code that's actually going to give you 50% off your first year subscription, so it's really a no-brainer. They have top brands like Bass Mafia, Rapala, Teenage Marine, Aquaview. list goes on and on, over 80 brands so far and growing head on over to outdoorsponsors.com and use my code crush 50 all caps crush 50 to save 50 percent off your first year's membership pretty cool deal let's get back to the podcast we're back to the small mouth crush podcast with your host travis manson was i was using my tarova so when nobody had spot lock i had spot lock for three years yeah. Like literally. Yeah. And that, I mean, that again is responsible for a whole bunch of dollars that were, that were won during fishing tournaments. But, um, so what I would do is I'm cameraing and I'm using the remote on the electric motor to reposition myself, pull off, pull in, whatever. Hmm. So yes, I'm on the electric motor, but not in the same way you'd think I'm sitting at the driver's seat with my remote control in my hand. Yeah. So this is how awesome it was back when it was a lot easier I'd see a whole school of fish. I'd hit spot lock. I'd pull my camera up. I'd pick up my rod. I'd do one pitch. I'd catch a five pounder. Hmm. That's kind of how, you know, it's, it, it was that easy the first two years. And obviously yeah. it's amazing how fishing pressure can change things like. Wow. Yeah, man, this is good stuff. So how do you, as far as someone that's just learning a camera system and, and working. So, you know, obviously getting enough weight and there's some creative ways to do that. You know, I use uh tie straps on mine and then ju- I just put one of them big downrigger weights on. Um, how about determining the size of fish that you're seeing on a camera? How do you teach somebody that? That's, that's another great question, man. <laughs> um, here's, the, here's the rule I go by. If they have a bump on their forehead, they're huge. They're big. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, if they're beat up, they're big. Like if they're their tails are the second you see the split tails, mm-hmm. they're old fish, they're big. Yep. And when they swim, if they have a real slow shimmy, they're big. What I in French we call them the petit nerveux, which are the little nervous. So when okay. they swim really fast, or they come up to the cat and they have these little little black faces and they swim up. Those sure. are usually your three pounders. Okay. So yeah. I, I'm wrong. I'm not always right. Cause sometimes you see a big pale one and they look small cause they're not black, mm. but they're really, really, really big. And you just can't get that same sizing, but go by if they're banged up or if they have the double chin, you know, when they have that double chin in the mm-hmm. front where it, they have the mouth and then the, mm-hmm. the second lump underneath, but it's, yeah. it's only trial and error. Don't think if you see a whole bunch of black ones swimming around that you're on a school of giant fish. 
they're generally speaking, they're three pounders. Wow. Yeah. Good stuff. (laughs) That got me excited. Listen, I think Aquaview's an idiot for not contacting you, man. You need to be their spokesperson. Uh, What's the, uh, what's the scariest thing you've seen down there on the camera? You got any stories? Uh uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I keep telling my buddy I'm going to see a body in like right. weeks at some point, but uh, mm-hmm. it hasn't happened. The scariest thing I've probably seen down there would be uh, would be a giant muskie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just yeah. just seeing how big they are, thinking sure. that things actually going to attack my camera. I've actually right. had one of them come in hot on the camera wow. to turn away at the last second, which is pretty neat. Uh, awesome. But no, never saw anything too. Uh, seen some really cool stuff down there. I though. bet. Yeah, sure. I've seen a bunch of bunch of random shipwrecks. I did see mm-hmm. a car once. Uh, wow. I found a car in like 25 foot of water, which I still don't understand. Like it was yeah. in a current. So sure. I don't know, it fell off a barge or something or who knows. Was there any fish around it? Yeah, there actually was. Uh, wow. There's a bunch of actually on the Quebec side of the St. Francis, there's a bunch of sunken planes that they sunk uh, as mm. dive sites and stuff like that. So there's some pretty cool stuff. I actually saw a diver once, which wasn't so cool. Um, <laughs> didn't realize I was cameraing that close to a diver. So uh-huh. <laughs> That was a bit weird, but yeah, no, nothing, uh, nothing. I can see that kind of being like, you know how, how, when you're on live scope, you kind of lose sense of where you're at. Uh, I'm sure that's the same way when you're staring at a camera down there. Uh, <laughs> I've almost banged into a couple of, uh, navigational buoys before. That. Sure. I'd be alive. It'd be alive if I told you I didn't. So I bet. So your, your typical, uh, setup with a football jig, you're, you're talking beefier rods, you know, medium, medium heavies braid. What, what, is your go-to line diameter when it comes to dragging? The, I assume you're dragging the football or are yeah, you exactly. making casts? Okay. Yeah, we're, so another good question. So when you go back to our, uh, I was talking about spot lock before we actually developed a way uh, and it's, it's that technique. I'm not ashamed to, I'm not shy to say it. I should say it's actually really slowed down and it's in the last year or so it's, it's caused me a couple of good tournament finishes because I couldn't get the fish to bite the way I wanted to a little bit stubborn when it comes to that. So mm-hmm. there's two ways with those football heads, we would either do a spot lock on a specific area and bomb out a cast and then kind of drag and reel. Bring, yep. We've had all sorts of whacked out hook sets under the boat, the fish jumping behind because they're kind of biting on that current angle. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, it's you're right. It is it is drifting down down the river with a football head. So r- normally, what we were up until this year was pretty much a seven foot medium heavy rod, uh, fifteen pound braid, and a fifteen pound fluorocarbon leader. That okay. is it. That is all. So that technique has also cost me many of thousands of dollars yes. on broken off fish. Yes. On hook sets, like we've had quite a few tournaments in the last three years. That we showed up, we did really well. We finished second or third, but like you know, we're not the type of guys to cut. You know, you know those guys that come to the show. Oh man, I lost three six pounders today. But like, I look at my partner and be like, dude, we just dropped. We left fifteen grand in the lake, not mm-hmm. because they jumped off, just on dragging through those razor blade shell beds and then yep. setting the hook. And the second you set the hook, it goes snap instantly. But mm-hmm. some days, like you break off twenty bites. So when you lose by point thirty. And you broke mm-hmm. off 20 bites and you were fishing around five pounders, you know, so it's cost us a lot. But generally wow. speaking, it's a 15 pound braid with a 15 pound fluorocarbon leader and a stout spinning rod for the most part. Spinning rod. Interesting. Spinning rod. Yeah. Love it. I like that crossbody hook set. My right. Yes. I okay. I off the right side of the boat. And yep. when it bites, I come across my body and like when, when the line doesn't break, they're pinned. So... I want to give you a, a real quick story because this, this kind of developed into um, this is some good information here. This was my first year on the river, really, really focusing on a football head and, and dragging it quite a bit. And I was still a little, I learned a lot over the last couple months. It, it did actually cost me uh, a very good finish, just like you were talking about in that last bass open there, especially on day one. But I originally was experimenting dragging a half ounce on the spinning rod, but the setup was my standard eight pound braid, right? Cause I was, I was in finesse mode yep. with like a 10 pound. I bumped it up 10 or 12 pound fluorocarbon leader. And instantly I knew just like you're talking about, you're getting, you're dragging on the bottom stuff's happening. Um, the line was too many nicks, but I also started losing a few fish after having them on for a while. It would, you know, they would jump, twice three times 
if if I got past that, I normally could get them in. But it was that first initial or jump or two, and so I switched to a baitcaster. I stepped it up a little bit, went medium heavy. I did go heavier braid, a little bit heavier than what you're talking though, actually, and I think it's too much. Um, but with seventeen pound, I was I went with fifty. Now I'm actually heading back up there this week, and I have my football heads ready, and uh, I went down to twenty because I just felt. And now I'm kind of thinking maybe go a little little less from that. But you're right. It's it's a challenge. And what what really got me hooked was the bite, dragging a football, like how much fun that is. And I really preferred dragging that on a spinning rod because that's just what I love to do. I, I, I don't have a problem doing a baitcaster, but I kept thinking in my head, man, I wish I could make it work. So maybe if I step it up a little bit in, in the line like you're saying – and go a little heavier on the fluorocarbon leader. I really like the way that feels in my hands when I'm dragging a football with a spinning rod. I, I think I'm with you with that. So for years, I lost a lot of fish. Um, I was fishing a half-ounce exposed hook. So you'd be like, man, how am I losing these fish? The thing is, is that the way they're biting it in the shell beds on the bottom, you never know how... Like, if you ever see those underwater footage of how smallmouth eat a craw, mm-hmm. they, sometimes they thump it. Yes, yes. But we're setting the hook often. Um, when On that, that fish is thump. Just, yeah, thump. Yeah, thump. They're biting it and spitting it out because that's what they yep. do with the craws. Yep. So, and this is actually as cheesy as it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a plug from one of my companies, but it changed. I was actually using this before I actually came on board with American Baitworks. So, Freedom sure. Tackle makes a swing head football yep. head. Yep. Changes everything. The smallmouth will actually sew their mouths closed. The hook will go in and then re-pick through the other side of their mouth. And because what ends up happening is when they bite it, they don't have any leverage to throw it because the weight is moving with the line and the Mm. hook is staying in the same place. The moment I went to that, because that football head comes with a straight shank hook. So when the, and I'm telling you about three years ago when I made the switch to that football head with the swing hook, I'm telling you, I lost a fraction. Don't get me wrong, I still lose some. It's not an easy technique. It's mm-hmm. not the bait caster that's going to get it in the boat anymore. You know, obviously, if you're using light spinning gear, that's not going to work. Right. But the difference between a seven foot medium heavy spinning rod and a bait cast with 30 pound braid with a 20 pound leader, the difference will be negligible on the fish coming in the boat. Mm. The moment you put the right jig head, your catch rate will go up considerably. And I'm telling you, like, like, pick those up and try them. You will be very, very satisfied. I will. So when you're dragging that and you like, how does the hook set work? Can you walk me through that? Because I, I'm just picturing you're holding the rod at what? 90, 90 I degrees down. I usually hold it down towards okay. like, it'll be about, if you, if you were to calculate about three feet off the water level would be. The okay. Yeah. And then what ends up happening is it, it's, it's often like, uh, I you almost have to make the sound effect to understand what it right. is. It's like it goes tonk. Like it just it just thumps the rod and you usually get a big slack line. So first thing is when your line goes slack on the hit, generally mm-hmm. it's a real big one. I'm not okay. really sure why, but just the 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 numbers of big ones that have come from that type of hit. But it'll often just knock slack directly into your line. And literally you're setting, and that's why you break off so often because you're going from a slack line and then I come across my body on the hook set from right to left. And once that line tightens, then you're obviously setting your hook. So very rarely is it um, like a oh, fish on and the fish, like, you know, a drop shot, it'll, you'll just have the fish on all of a sudden, right? Yeah. You'll know you're, you'll always have time to set the hook on a football head bite. Almost. Okay. It'll very rarely... And honestly, every once in a while, you know, it'll come where the fish will be hooked up so fast that you're almost sure bringing them, you're going to lose them because you never got the hook in them. You need sure. that sweeping hook set. It's not a, you know, an up hook set like a drop shot. It's really a cross body. Cross body. Okay. Spinning, flipping stick style. And then, okay. And then once you get that, once you feel that fish, I'm assuming you're reeling as, as hard as you can to keep. Yeah. No drag. No drag. My drag is cranked all the way down. Yep. It's burned me on thousands of smallmouth caught. I've maybe been burned three or four times with a real big one that comes up and you're like, oh my God. And then it, it bulldogs and it breaks. The sure. Line. 
But generally, are you adjusting your drag then as it gets closer to the boat? No. If you need to, no. Right in. Okay. Right in. Like keep it coming. Keep when it coming. That fish comes from twenty-five to forty-five foot of water, and you have her up. A lot of times at that part of the fight, they're kind of done. I don't want to mean mm-hmm. the fight is done, but they're not going to go. It's not a smallmouth on a drop shot that's going to go take off and go down twenty feet. She might pull a bit, but okay. just the tension of the rod will usually yep. turn their head. Turn it around. Good yeah. stuff. Wow. Whew. Yeah, that got no, me excited, man. I, I talk a lot and I like sharing, so it, it works out. No, <laughs> that's great. Um, well, let's share a little more if you could. Sure. If you had to choose a couple colors, um, what are you looking at? Whichever shade of green pumpkin you like. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm I'm a real natural color guy. Uh, you know, if I'm, I really don't, I try to keep fishing as easy as possible because this, even with all the years of experience, and this obviously, I'm saying this jokingly, but I still find that I really suck. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is the more you know, the less you know. Like, I feel like me and my buddy used to sit in this hot tub and we used to, you know, uh, airplay um, like Navionics from his <laughs> tablet to it. We just right. walk fishing and just chill. And we'd realize like we'd open one door and then it'd be a room with 20 more doors in it. Sure. And you're like, oh man, you just opened the deep fishing door. But now do you fish, you know, do you fish mm-hmm. in the current? Do you fish out of current? Do you fish behind islands in front? I mean, there's a million ways to it. So it's the same thing when it comes to color selection. I go largemouth fishing. I take back a green pumpkin. I go smallmouth fishing. I take green pumpkin. Or I take uh, like a, a smelt or an alewife color from fishing in a lake. Like Keeping three, it simple. Yeah. <laughs> three, four colors. And that, like. I've experimented with some different colors and stuff like that. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I've, um, you know, I've, I, for the most part, it's, it's a green pumpkin, black flake, uh, pretty natural. Don't get me wrong. Other colors work. Yep. People have caught, caught me uh, with different colors, but it's, it's a standard color. What speed is that critical when you're, when you're drifting? Are you on the trolling motor a little bit to slow your drift or are you just letting the river take it naturally? Or what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Good, good question. Um, I'll slow my boat down um, if the if it's like a real strong west wind and we're ripping down the current mm-hmm. just because I can't feel my bait. Mm-hmm. But down there, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't necessarily think it's nearly moving as fast as it is down there as it is on the surface with the wind. So I really try to, I just, I, I don't, I definitely don't adjust the bait of my, uh, or the speed of my bait, I should say. Okay. I'll just kind of slow my boat down to have a better feel. But uh, for the most part, I mean, I just took along the bottom of the river. Are you doing real controlled drifts where it's almost the point where, man, you get three minutes into a drift and you're back up top again? Or is there some scenarios where it's a longer drift? Or what's the percentage between those two? 99 to 1. Short wow. drifts versus long drifts. So I you're just on a specific little deal. It, yeah. I, I seem aggravated because you know how time consuming and monotonous and okay, bring up the lines. Let's go back mm-hmm. up. Okay. Bring up the lines. We're going to put the electric motor back in, put the electric motor back on oh, the line. The rods caught in the electric motor. I mean, I'm <laughs> right. not the only one dealing with this crap. <laughs> I deal with it every day where sometimes sure. I'm like, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Um, your lines stuck in your electric motor handle and all that crap. Yeah. Um, but no, for the most part, they're ultra, ultra. I really wish I had drifts where there was a whole bunch of fish over a long stretch. Yeah. But it just yeah. doesn't work out that way. I mean, mm-hmm. I think you can get a lot of smaller fish doing that, but I think the big fish are sure. really specific. Real defined specific. spots. You mentioned half ounce and three quarter. When are you making the switch? Is it depth of water? Is it the feel of the bait? What's determining that? Whether Good it be question. a half or a yeah. three quarters. And yeah. are you ever going lighter or heavier never lighter never heavier um half for 90 percent of the situations uh, three quarter for 10 mm-hmm. uh the only time i really go to three quarter is if uh too lazy to retie and my other rods are three quarters <laughs> sure um or really windy really windy yep. really deep i mean because mm-hmm. even in a strong west wind in 28 foot of water i have no issue feeling a half ounce like no yeah. issue so Let's say you're on a a good pattern. You have a bunch of spots. You locate them on the camera. You're feeling good. You decide to go at it with a football head and, and make these drifts and drags. Day of the tournament comes, and you have a strong east wind backing up that current. Does that affect your game plan? 
or are you going to try to make it work? Or have you seen where an east wind or a different wind is really going to mess up some of these drifts? And what do you do to overcome that? Uh, it's more difficult for the angler than the fish, I believe. Um, the fish are in the current and they're down there. I I don't want to get on to whether they're biting better or not because I, it contradicts me every time anyways. Oh, mm-hmm. east wind, it's going to suck. They're crushing it. Oh, it's a good west wind. They're not, they're not biting. So I have a real mm-hmm. hard time. Um, you know, anybody could tell you one thing and then you, 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 you will have been able to prove the opposite the next time you go fishing. So, but it's more for the angler, you know, it's easy to just drop a bait in front of the boat and let the boat drift backwards. So in those situations, I just, I put the boat, uh, down current and I just drift down current and then drag behind the boat. And that makes a pretty badass hook set as well. When you're coming from behind you forward, uh, on those drifts, but I mm-hmm. just try to keep my life easy. If, if the current ain't right, or there's for whatever reason, uh, it just, it's not bringing me down the river the way I needed to. I just put the nose with the current and drag myself down. Okay. So you'll still try to make it work. Always. Always. Man, that's a weakness of me. I, especially in the the upper part where I fish, when we get a strong East wind, I, I feel defeated almost when I'm launching the boat, but I need to get better at that. Find those shell beds, find the shell beds where the, the, the the volume of smallmouth are. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll tell you one thing. So I was practicing for the Renegade class, uh, sorry, the Renegade, the last Renegade of the year, which was on, uh, out of the St. Lawrence, but obviously on, uh, on the Ontario side, but like way further East above the dam, but mm-hmm. way further East and in between Mallory town and, uh, Rockport, which would be on the Canadian side, obviously. I mean, I found drifts that had hundreds and I'm talking hundreds of smallmouth. Now I don't know if guys are on them yet. I think, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the rivers just so big. There's so many current cuts. And I, there's the first time I ever really tried cameraing there. Hmm. And like, I never want to ever hear somebody didn't bring in a five fish limit <laughs> on the St. Lawrence ever again, just because of, if you actually start looking in that current uh, where there's actually some good current in the St. Lawrence uh, throughout the whole system, there is so many bass like I'm talking drifts. Like I, I told my partner, I'm like, I think I have a drift that has like 2,500 fish on it. I know that sounds Jeez. completely nuts to say, because even when I say it, I sound like you sound like an idiot saying that, but like everywhere the camera would spin, it would be tens and twenties and thirties for yeah. 20 straight minutes. Wow. But at a certain point, I mean, there's, there's hundreds cool. and hundreds of them. Right. So yeah, go, if you have a bad East wind, go fish deep current. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> there he is. Uh, man, that's that's really that's some good information right there, man. This was some good stuff. We are getting a little uh, man. This hour flew by quick. Real I know, quick. man. That's why usually when we do these things, even when I bring people on, you can even do like a part two at some point. I know this is so crazy. Um, man, we didn't even get to half the stuff I wanted to ask you. Uh, going back to this, I, I gotta I gotta ask. A lot of these fish, there's fish all over in the river. You get into some of this current and whatnot. You hear a lot of guys dragging drop shots. And obviously that does work. But what is going to be your reasoning that you go with a football head? Or maybe you do a lot with a drop shot. I don't, we didn't really get into that. But are some guys messing up by not dragging a football versus uh, a drop shot? Yes. And, and why aren't they hurt. catching them? Why aren't they not catching those fish? Um. I think it has to do with a lot of lack of experience on how those fish are setting up in the river. Okay. You know, they, something I learned is they're not always eating. And that's, that's one of the things I've had the most, like the hardest time understanding and figuring out and trying to totally, you know, wrap my mind around because I just think they straight up ain't eating sometimes. Hmm. And, you know, I've, like I said, unfortunately for me, and I'm playing that poor me thing, but in the last year to two years, my football head bite has slowed down a lot. Now, is it because my fish are truly getting pressured after seven, eight, ten years of hammering them? More guys doing it, more guys trying it. Is it a fishing pressure thing? Is it a like Travis can go so far in? Mm-hmm. Is there less current in the system now in certain places? So that football head bite is not as good anymore versus a drop shot bite because i watched a guy in a tournament this year feed it to me 10 feet from me with a drop shot and like i'm not saying he didn't know what he was doing but i'm telling you he didn't know what he was doing sure and and 
like I got. And could it be that particular day? Maybe they just weren't on the football. You know what I mean? That's that. That's the million dollar question Mm -hmm. because you know. And then I started playing in my mind, going like, "Man, I gotta start throwing a drop shot on these spots." And guess what happened? Sure. I started throwing a drop shot. Guess what happened? Started catching some big fish. Uh. And now this year, I still have like a hundred packs of football heads because I ain't going through them as much anymore. Hmm. Yeah. Because I've now switched over a little bit more to drop shot fishing. So, right. you know, and I would almost go a step further. I was watching some of that Bass Live uh, replays on the final day on the Open and that Dean Dean Meckes guy, who's mm-hmm. a local up in your area, yep. he was pushing a football head. I sure. Like, I like this guy. <laughs> right. And, right. You know, he weighed in what, like two twenty fours, like back to back, right? So yeah, I think he had almost. I think he has twenty seven pound day that one. So yeah, it was a big bag yeah. and then another mm-hmm. twenty four or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know yet, man. I don't know if and next year could be totally different. Could be back on the football. Yeah. Oh, that's that's the whole thing, right? Yeah. So I don't yeah. really have. I wish I can give you a definitive answer to that, but for the most part, I mean. I think more guys should throw the football head because um, everybody's throwing a drop shot. Mm-hmm. Football heads, it covers a lot of water. And one other thing, it draws fish in. That's something I didn't mention earlier. A football head will draw a fish in from a long distance on a shell bed. It's bang, 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 bang. It must be kicking up shells. A drop shot is a mm-hmm. lot more finesse presentation. So when you see these guys fishing these specific drifts, a drop shot's great if you're right on their nose. But if you're fishing a giant shell flat, um, you know, you're going to be way better off fishing a football head to bring the fish in from a further distance. Right. That's what, that's what I believe. Dang. Okay. Or not. Or not. <laughs> Blew my mind, guys. I know I know the viewers and uh, watchers appreciated this uh, podcast for sure. Some really good information. A uh, couple things I, I need to ask. I ask every guest that comes on here. If I was to give you one bait to use for the whole year, what would that be? Well, from what I've seen this year, uh, the new flat-sided shad from Set the Hook infused with bait fuel. So bait fuel was um, is basically a scientific, scientifically proven scent that was developed at Queen's University in Kingston. Mm-hmm. And we've now found a way. So it's been that's been in the process for four years. Uh, to get this to go like when I tell you this is not your traditional add some scent and oh it smells like garlic or it smells like anise or anything um, what it's actually done is we've now with all the set the hook and net bait products going forward uh, bait fuel is going to be infused and it's going to be cooked into the bait when they're being poured so that being said I saw some stuff this year with a flat-sided shad which is basically a minnow bait I wish I would have brought one here but it's a minnow bait so I'm just taking notes flat sided Shad. From and can people get their hands on this right now? It's going to be available in about three weeks from now. Okay. So I've been the reason why I say this is because I've been using it and testing it all year, and I've been watching smallmouth swallow drop shot baits to their crushers, which I have never ever seen before in all my years of drop shot fishing. They're hooked in the top of the mouth and the lip. I've actually had to, you know, go in and from the gill mm-hmm. plate and take out a drop shot bait. Not a Senko, you know, like a legit yeah. drop shot bait. And that showed me, and I mean, I've caught my six biggest fish this year came on that bait. So if I had to make wow. a choice going forward, I mean, I've used it on suspended smallmouth on the Rito Chain Lakes. I've used it on, you know, St. Lawrence bottom, bottom dwelling fish. What's the best way to rig that then? Is that, is it on a drop shot? Drop shot. Yeah, okay. drop shot. I've been playing on a, on a Ned head as well. Okay. Ned head's been doing some pretty bad things for it as well. But uh, for the most part, you know, standard drop shot, three eighth ounce weight eight mm-hmm. pound line and it's uh, it's been scary how many hmm. fish i've caught uh my six biggest fish this year have actually come on that bait so okay if i have you had to ask me what am i using right now yeah using. good to know good to know so what is your personal best smallmouth so my personal best smallie i actually have two of them in the same day at the b1 hmm. in 2014 were 684 both of them sure nice yeah nice. so i had two 684s and a six and a half that day so that was uh, that was a day i'll remember for a long time football head um, I have a, sorry, what'd you say? Football head? Uh, both of them on football heads. Nice. Yeah. Football yeah. head with craw baits on the, on the back of them. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I have a small mouth from my younger days that I didn't have a scale in the boat. 
that must have been like a 30 inch small mouth. I have no yeah. idea how big it <laughs> right, was. Right, right. But uh, one day I'll, I'll share you a pic of it. Uh, you, you make your guess on it. I'm assuming it's a seven and a half, close to eight pounder. It was a real big, wow. deep uh, tube fish on St. Francis. But my biggest fish ever weighed are two 684s in the same day of the tournament. Nice. Very nice. It's kind of weird and same time yes well good stuff i we definitely ran out of time i'd love to have you uh possibly on a future live show uh at some sure. point here so i uh, would love yeah, to have you back yeah, awesome what's the what's the way people can follow you keep up with you on social media what's the best way to uh get a hold of you if they want yeah so uh i've actually in the last year and a half i've created a facebook page called uh, breaking bass with jay Gramata. So if you type in Breaking Bass with Jay Gramata, you got all sorts of content on there. I do a bunch of lives during tournaments, pre-tournaments, post-tournament, uh, kind of real organic stuff. I really try to educate anglers. I share a lot of the company stuff that I do to, to support the companies that I work for. Uh, and then obviously you can just follow me on my regular Facebook page and just be Jason Gramata Fishing. Uh, a bunch of my personal stuff, family stuff, stupid stuff I like to share. I mean, I'm pretty much an open book, as you've probably seen with uh, with with this podcast here. But uh, for the most part, everything's going to be kind of on Breaking Bass, uh, Bacon Bass Jay. And I'm hoping next year, if my cards line up right, I'll be fishing the three Bassmaster Northern Opens. Nice, so sure. uh, if that works out, I'm going to try to shoot like a video series. Nothing, nothing crazy like what Paul and Nick's doing and anything, but just kind of like a real homegrown, down-to-earth, organic, uh, you know, uh, you know, from the moment I leave to the moment the event is done with a bunch of on water and stuff. So it's a, it's a cool page. It's a lot more stuff coming to it, but that would probably be the best way to go ahead and follow me. Very good. Awesome stuff, man. I really appreciate you uh, hanging out with us for this podcast. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. My pleasure, man. We'll talk soon. Cool, cool. And if anyone needs to get a hold or uh, check them out on social media, we'll put those descriptions down at the bottom. And as always, until next time, we'll see you guys on the water. Thanks so much for listening today. Make sure that you're subscribed to the show and follow us on Instagram at Smallmouth Crush. Also, the YouTube channel, Smallmouth Crush. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us a five-star rating and comment with a review below. And as always, until next time, we'll see you on the water.